Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider Podcast. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Melina Haddad and I will be speaking with Nick Radford, founder and CEO of Nauticus Robotics, and Ellie Spiro, CEO of Cleantech Acquisition Corp. The pair announced a $377 million combination agreement in December. Leveraging experience developing robotics for use in space for NASA, Nick and his team are deploying a fleet of -of state-of-the-art underwater robots. These can perform inspection and maintenance tasks on energy installations, ports, and telecom infrastructure, among other use cases. He talks about how Nauticus's robot-as-a-service business model has the potential to disrupt the $30 billion market the company is attacking. And Ellie also gets into what it has been like on the inside of a SPAC search process under the current market conditions and how he put his Goldman Sachs experience to use. Take a listen. And so just to start off, Nick, I'd love to get into your past work for NASA and how that experience you had there developing robotics for space led you to found Nauticus. You know, what were you building there and how do the environmental demands of robotics for space compare with deep water? It was awesome, honestly. It was one of the best places anyone could could hope to start a career in and, and uh, working around some of the best and brightest minds. It was awesome. It was humbling and awesome. And everybody sort of just constantly wanted to up their game all the time, just with the mission and, and your peers. And But, you know, our focus, what we were really working on was exploration beyond low Earth orbit. And we used the space station as some sort of proving grounds. And we were, we were constantly looking at how we would build robotic morphologies to explore beyond low Earth orbit. So our charge was, how do you put a robot in a faraway location and get it to usefully interact with the world around it with very little communication, NASA and space flight. Communication in space is kind of crappy, frankly. And even to the space station, you deal with significant time delays and latencies and, and bandwidth limitations. And so we developed this architecture where you're going to be on the ground, you're going to be controlling a robot in space, the communication is not going to be very good, you you need the robot to work in the environment and, and hang out with the astronauts and, and do things together. And along that way, a number of us decided that that was very similar to a challenge of working underwater. And we really became inspired, and I think it's kind of turned into a bit of an obsession now, uh, with applying those similar technologies to the underwater world, which is frankly fascinating and couldn't be more proud and honored to be working in this, this economy. Uh, the blue economy is quite compelling and, and something we don't really talk about every day, but it's, but, it's, but it's awesome. You know, there are significant challenges to your point, right? What are, what are the analogies? Getting to space is kind of hard, right? You have to expend a significant amount of energy in a short period of time in a violent way uh, to get to space. But once you're there, it's kind of chill. And, uh, you know, you can put something in motion in space and in 10,000 years predict with exceptional accuracy of where that object's going to be. Underwater is not quite that way. It's an extremely harsh environment, like space, but very harsh. You have the weight of the ocean that's sort of um, weighing down on you, wanting to crush you with the, with the pressure. And there's life everywhere, like unlike space. There's life everywhere, and there's their own version of big monsters and aliens that are, that are constantly around you. And, but however, the way we had developed and, and designed our robotics, it just it, we found such an easy transition of going from one harsh environment to the next, even though the pressure differentials are a little different, things corrode significantly underwater. But it really prepared us, right? So your my long-winded answer to your, to your opening question, we couldn't have had a better education in developing useful robotics for spaceflight that prepared us in the way that it did for tackling this underwater world. 
Great. And for Ellie, you know, Cleantech's S1 noted that you set out looking for a company producing positive change for the environment. And that's a fairly broad space. But how did you sort of narrow down on Blue Tech and, and Nauticus more specifically as it? And how did it stand out among the various other areas you were looking? We did look at a number of companies. We looked at about 65 and Nick and the team at Nauticus came to the top of the list very, very quickly. It was the expertise. It was the team, just strong backgrounds. It was also a function of the, the, the carbon savings that you have here, 40 to 70 metric tons a day uh, from the large boats that are the current version of what's necessary. Whereas uh, what Nick's developed with the Aquanauts, it's all underwater and it's a, a, a de minimis amount of, of carbon emissions. And so that that checked our clean tech box, but more importantly, and or just as importantly for investors, you know, you want to know that you're going to make people money. And this is a company that had a lot of very positive elements to it. This was not a science project. One of our key mandates was let's find something that's a real business. We're not looking for something that's in test mode. We want a product that's proven. We want nothing that's in development. We want to know that there are customers. We want to know that there's revenue, which Nauticus all had. There are significant margins here. In fact, over, over 60% margins on this because it's such a, such a change and fundamentally different technology than what's out there today. So highly disruptive. Uh, and then you look at who's backing it. You have some of the largest players in the space in Schlumberger and Transocean own 50% of this company before this transaction. Those are pretty large players to be backing this. They can each individually use a lot of these products. And so, you know, we were very excited about that. And then lastly, we came to terms with Nick pretty quickly and had the right mindset. There's a lot of SPACs out there that try and ring that billion dollar bell and then they face plant on day two. And that's not what we're about. We're about making long-term positive and significant income for our, our shareholders. And so Nick and I were both and our boards were both on board with that approach. So we came in with a valuation that we felt collectively was well below where it should have been priced. And so that gives a chance for investors to all make money here. And then more on the product side, can you get into the differences between your current product models? Just how many do you currently have out there working and what markets are they most prevalent in? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the incumbent technology that we feel has the highest probability of, of change here. For about the last 50, 60 years, if you wanted to do a significant amount of things underwater, you either had to use a diver, a human being, or you had to have what they call a remotely operated vehicle connected with a very large extension cord, this umbilical, to a substantial surface presence, either a ship, a platform, something, right? That entire string that setup is extremely costly, even with a diver, because there's a lot of support. Um, there's a lot of support on top for the diver. And that was sort of the gold standard, the de facto standard of how people would work in the different economies underwater. And they're, and they're, they're very vast. A lot of people think, I think, around the oil and gas production that occurs uh, offshore, but there's an explosion in offshore renewables that are occurring right now. And your fixed wind farms to floating and heck, even tidal, all the way aquaculture, the, way, the, the rate at which we're actually overfishing the ocean is necessitating an explosion of aquaculture and sustainable fish farming, telecommunications, your port management, uh, security. And, and then, of course, there's some defense applications for this. So there is quite a vibrant market. And so if you look at the tried and true way of working underwater, it's usually what I had mentioned before. What we've come up with is something that is far less in its, in its footprint, both cost and environmental uh, with emissions. 
and doesn't have all the same type of physical infrastructure. So I don't need a three mile extension cable connected to a very large expensive surface presence to work underwater. That's where our new technology, that's where our advanced technology inspired by spaceflight robotics really comes in. So we have uh, really adapted that to displace the current offering. And there's a lot of places in the market where, of course, you're always going to use a vessel, right? You're doing construction and decommissioning, and you, you need to put big stuff in the ocean or take big stuff out of the ocean. It does necessitate that. But what we feel, whether it's in energy, uh, renewables or hydrocarbons, whether where you have things that are already sort of in operation, you need to check on them every once in a while. You need to check their corrosion. You need to check uh, their production. Um, where you actually have to physically interact with the world around around you. Our solution, based on our fleet that we've that we've announced, we think is going to be what many customers choose, given its price point and its emissions, uh, the reduction of emissions. So we've built, uh, you know, we've built we've built a couple, and um, we've got uh, a couple out there already. Uh, their markets are both in in uh, mostly in the government sector right now. Uh, governments are really good to develop technology with. We've had a lot of government support along the way. Governments are great because their IP, there's really pretty favorable IP rights. So beyond the, the corporate venture capital and other institutional venture capital money that we had raised a priori, we had a lot of government support in, uh, in, in sort of a non-dilutive fashion. And we've been developing out those markets and, and servicing them. So we've got the beginnings of that and under contracts with them. And, you know, that's going quite well. Basically, what we're doing now is that we've taken that, that sort of momentum and we're focusing it into the commercial sector. We're opening up offices in, in Europe. Uh, so basically in, in um, Stavanger, Norway and Aberdeen in, the, in Scotland. And so those are going to be one of our uh, launching points, um, as we announced here recently in, in a press release that we had come out. Well, now we're essentially have uh, the first efforts uh, of our, what I'll say, our commercial expansion um, in the international sector. And that is in production now, basically in, in early, late Q3, early Q4. Those will come off the assembly line, um, go through their commissioning period and, and, and get in the hands of the customers. So, um, you know, it's a really exciting period because we're underway. We, we actually announced recently as well that we're going to be building 20 of these systems over the next couple of years. And that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, the market, you know, we're, we're not even close, uh, you know, 20, maybe even 100 systems. You know, we're not even we're not even in the ballpark of saturating the market, even, per, you know, even a couple percent market share if we had all of them under utilization. What's amazing about our business is that what we're competing with was at relatively high price point, but what we've created is relatively low cost to operate, which as Ellie mentioned, does leave on the table substantial margin. Got it. And then how does all of that compare to competitors and just how fragmented is the market? That's interesting. I would say that the way the current market is structured, it's not terribly differentiated. So here, when I started thinking about this industry, taking this technology, moving into it, I didn't want to go off and be another, say, ROV services company. Uh, what I saw there is sort of this race to the bottom on margin. There's no differentiation. There's a significant amount of players that all buy the same hardware. They use the same stuff. The companies themselves, very excellent companies, 
start to start to compete with each other on whose logistics train is better than than the others on making repairs in the field, right? It isn't the fact that they have technology that's differentiating them, causing the operation at a different price point. So customers or procurements of these services, there's there's not a lot of differentiation between the, the different customer groups beyond maybe some historical track record, right? That sort of informs their decision. What we wanted to do was come in at something significantly lower in cost and different that was based on very high high tech uh, underpinnings. Uh, I, I feel like technology is like bringing a gun to a knife fight, right? It's that asymmetric advantage that allows someone to punch above their weight. And, and that's how, you know, that's how companies grow. That's how market share gets, gets taken. And that's what I think we're all pretty excited about, right? I mean, we're not, we didn't just go off and, and try to deploy the same sort of tech that had been done before and, and go in there and, and cost it 5% less, right? We're costing this 50% less. And at 50% less, that gives a customer base a significant amount of at least pause in, do I go with the traditional folks or do I try this other thing? Because it is far cheaper. Nick, if I can just add to that, is that uh, as part of our diligence, we looked at you know who else is out there. And we saw a number of underwater robotic companies that were uh, out in the market. However, none of them could do anything uh, in the form of work under the water. They could do pictures, videos, surveys, assessment. But when it came time to do work, nobody other than Nauticus was out there besides the old incumbents that are the large boats with large umbilicals and that that huge cost and infrastructure topside above the water. And so that's what we saw as a differentiator. And given that this is a team that's been together for 20 years, between 13 years at NASA and seven, eight years here at Nauticus, we think that this team has a very, very strong head start in this space. Yeah, it's interesting. You're also seemed very differentiated from the competition in terms of your your revenue model as well. And that it looks like moving forward, you're going to be you know working to transition more and more of your revenue away from pure sales into this robotics as a service model. Can you talk a little bit about how those two revenue streams differ and what's sort of the payback timeline for, on your side and, and what are some of the, those advantages there? The, the industry already operates in very much an as-a-service capacity. The difference that we're making is that we, we abstract a lot of how the job is done away from the end client. Uh, even though there's like rates that, that clients pay you know, per day for this, per day for that, there's a whole smorgasbord, right? There's, there's an a la carte menu of all the different charges that a client uh, would see, everything from something getting mobilized out of port getting delayed because of weather, having to add this piece of tooling here and there. And it's a really complicated pricing. One of our big benefits is we abstract the client away from all of that. It's a flat fee. I don't care what you're asking me to do, right? The technology is allowing us at such a lower price point that we can make money in all different environments. So I can offer a very simple pricing. Um, the it's, it's a flat fee. Doesn't matter where I'm at. Doesn't matter uh, anything at all about the job. This is what you pay. And we have seen exception, exceptional reception in that sort of model because they can sort of predict, like, this is going to be my outlay. Um, you know, we, there's major advantages to that. So that is the, the business model of the company. The governments don't necessarily operate like that, right? The people that, that perform the service in the government industries, um, it's, just, it's just not set up the same commercially. So because we have had very good success with government-aligned markets, 
that model doesn't that 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 sales approach did not exactly model the the RAS aspect of the company. Although there there's elements of it, right? So we got to test a little bit with the market certain elements of the RAS model, but the RAS model was really reserved for the true commercial clients. You're right. There is a there is a transition occurring there, but. We have seen on the flip side, the government doesn't want to always be the owner of the asset. They don't want that on their balance sheet. They actually just want the service. You're going to find in general, people don't care all about robots. They don't care. Not at the end of the day, they don't care about robotics. They only want what the robot does. So in effect, we are selling out the action of the robot, right? That is what we offer. And the government does have some thinking that says, okay, maybe we can buy the action of the robot by the pound, as opposed to having to own the asset and then train people to use it, right? We're actually seeing some of that in, in, uh, in ports. Um, some of the feedback we're receiving from very large ports is that maybe, you know, maybe the port doesn't wanna own the asset. Maybe they just, wanna, they just wanna procure the service of monitoring the seabed for ship traffic and X, Y, and Z coming in, right? So we're actually exploring that business model with some of the ports. And it's interesting. And it's interesting how, as you're getting into there, that some of the dynamics of corporate versus government clients sort of differ. But I imagine also with this model, it would bring you some more visibility into your, your future revenue streams and, and, and how that's all going to stack up um, in, in the years to come. How much visibility do you have at the moment in terms of what, what you have ahead of you? Well, we have a lot of, there's a lot of signaled interest from our customers in way of LOIs and MOUs, right? It's kind of hard to order an Uber before it's off the assembly line. Right. So, so there is some element of growth of the company is very much throttled by the timely production of our assets. And as they get into service, um, you know, we've disclosed and it's, and it's very public that the launching of the fleet is occurring now that we've had some er very good early successes. As Ellie mentioned, we've been in technology development mode for a very long time. And so now as we emerge from that with a lot of early wins, now's the time to throw gas on the fire, get it off into the commercial markets. We have excellent inroads and early traction. We have contracts with, with some of the operators right now and for, for, the, for the maturation of the commercial kit you know, in their use cases. So we, we have very positive feeling that this is going to get adopted at the pace that we feel. There, there's, of course, risk to that. There's no doubt about it, right? There's, there's a macro, there's a geopolitical environment that is becoming increasingly more difficult to operate in. Things are just completely outside of my control. You know, a meteor could hit the, the earth tomorrow, right? I can't control that. Um, so so there, there are things like that. I mean, it is not a time in the world's uh, history to be shipping things around sea freight. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, ports of, are, are interesting to to deal with right now in terms of uh, receiving goods through them. But, uh, you know, we like where we're positioned and, and we feel pretty bullish on the future. And then moving over to the broader market, you estimate a total addressable market of 30 billion and a smaller serviceable obtainable market of 6 billion. So is the gap between those two numbers about geographies or contract types that are difficult to fulfill or technological use cases that require more development? Well, by definition, the total addressable market is sort of every instantiation you could think of of your product offering, whether you were selling all the assets out, if you were the complete owner of all the services in every single market and adjacencies and derivatives, right? So since that is impractical, there is a subset of that, which actually you can service and based on your business model, you think you could grow into. And so based on how some of these markets are growing. I mean, I think offshore wind is an excellent example. You know, there's about 30 gigawatts, roughly speaking, in, in Europe. 
Um, they're essentially wanting to double that over the next, uh, you know, next decade or so. The Biden administration announced their 30 gigawatts by 2030. That's going to involve a significant amount of inspection, maintenance, and repair activities of these fields. It's going to involve a lot of uh, pre-construction activities. Uh, take, take Europe, for example. One of the biggest things that they do before they build a wind farm is they look for a lot of unexploded ordnance, right? There was, we've had a few conflicts in Europe over the, over the years that have left the ocean full of a bunch of things that could go boom if you accidentally poke them wrong. And so some of the activity that we have to do underwater is to ensure that where we're going to put this uh, renewable wind farm is, is in a safe area. So there's a lot of work that's occurring underwater and, and offshore renewables is instigating a lot of that. So if you look at growth in the markets, what we feel our company is well positioned to handle, both in the government uh, sphere as well. I mean, the government is a non-trivial market here. And I think that maybe it even gets overlooked, but there's a defense component to this. There's 800 major ports worldwide. It's, it's an enormous sphere. The blue economy being in total a, a multi-trillion dollar economy, there's a lot of ways in which our company is going to play in, in that economy with these underwater technologies. And yeah, so the use, the use cases here are really abundant. There are just so many of them. And really, I think the question is, is Nick, how quickly can you build a, a large, large fleet here? Yeah, exactly. And and so I've asked Ellie for a lot of money, uh, which he's, <laughs> he's delivered on. When, when Ellie and I first came together debating this, you know, we thought about does, you know, being a public company make a lot of sense for, for us? And because the markets that we're in, the clients that we have uh, are, are very large other public companies, this is, a, this is a very B2B business oriented outlook that the staying power of a public company really helps the in our customers' eyes, the flexibility of being a public company with, with different kinds of uh, financing all the way to capital raising. There's a tremendous, tremendous amount of flexibility there that our customer base appreciates. And so, you know, we did see early on in the, in the very genesis part of us as an early private startup, that even though we had a really excellent idea and even some good technology, you know, why am I going to use you over the next person? You guys have only been here a few years. You're going to be out of business next year. Why would I invest all this time in you when I have no certainty that you're going to be able to deliver the service, right? Yeah, it's the risk of reliance and, and, you know, this public market position creates that credibility that you need. Exactly. And so that fed significantly into our idea of why we wanted to be a public company. Got it. And then given that some of your hardware ideas likely come from space, do you think you would ever consider returning to that market or any on-land robotics applications? Uh, yeah, I think because so many of our early joiners were former NASA roboticists, it's hard to take uh, the space out of the kid you know, I think everyone, you, you, everyone generally has that love for that outer space feeling, right? So I wouldn't rule it out, but I can assure you that that we are pretty focused, especially in the short term, that we feel just as much love towards the Earth's inner space. It is, we get, I've so I've flown hardware in, in space, right? You, we've put robots on the space station. There's a really cool feeling that you get doing that when you're in the control center and you're sending out commands on a laptop and your robot does this on the space station. You feel really cool about it. I have yet to ever feel that anywhere else in my life besides when our robots are operating underwater, far away from us. And it just feels exactly just the same. And so we are, the company... The, the mission that the staff inspired every single day uh, on this sort of ocean domain mission, just exactly as it was space. But we have created some really 
excellent IP that I think could make a difference back in outer space if we wanted to angle the company toward that uh, as we as we knock down our primary mission. Great. And, and on the SPAC side of things, you know, Ellie, I, I just kind of wanted to ask you about your impression of the search process in general through what has been a really up and down year for, for SPACs. You know, you announced this deal at a time when the pipe market was already tightening, but you managed to, to get that done. And just in general, what has it been like pulling together a deal in this market and now working through it to close? Yeah, de definitely a challenge uh, at the outset, but you know, we, we looked at it very systematically and said, we don't want to be in a position where we're out there looking for capital to try and get a deal closed. It just you know, changes the dynamic. And so we purposely went out and raised all the money that we needed for Nick in order to execute on this business plan. And so that's why we didn't announce our transaction until we had the pipe fully raised. That was number one. So that puts us in a very different position from a lot of the specs that are out there who are looking for pipe dollars right now and having to cut deals that just don't make sense for them or their shareholders. That's number one. Number two, as I mentioned earlier, we came to an agreement with Nick on the valuation here to come in well below where we think the fair value should be. Again, in order to make this a no-brainer for investors to come in and look at it relative to had we priced it you know, at, at the peak. Those are two of the two of the key components. Also, I, I think I'd say that when you when you think about companies like this and in this environment, you have to look at companies that are ripe and ready for going public. There's a lot of companies out there that, as I mentioned earlier, are really science projects and they just don't belong in the public forum. This is a company that is strong, that has its product out there, that has the revenue, that has a customer base, that has very, very strong near-term projections. I think that makes a big difference. Great. And can you also just talk a bit about your existing shareholder base and their long-term view of the company as it goes public? Yeah. And, and Nick, I'll turn over to you in a second, but the, the key difference, I think, between this transaction and some of the others that are out there is a lot of the SPAC, DSPAC transactions are effectively a liquidity event for shareholders. So existing shareholders who might've gotten into the seed round or the seed plus round or the A round or the B round, they got in at the equivalent of you know, 25 cents, 50 cents, a dollar, $2 relative to that $10 standard SPAC price. So a lot of them are unrestricted. They can sell the day after the DSPAC and they do that. And that's why a lot of these SPACs drop in value because you have investors that are looking at a multiple of their original capital and this is their liquidity event. Very different over here where we have the shareholder base that's very concentrated, are all long-term in mindset and are restricted at the outset. So I think that'll make a big difference. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's an excellent analysis. I think it's reflected in their support of the pipe. I feel like uh, further to what Ellie said, if they were just looking to exit the company and, and viewing this as a liquidity event, now that there is liquidity in, in, the, in the stock, which you don't get as easily, or if at all, it's private. I don't think we would have seen such strong support from, from the strategic shareholders of, of the company in general. So, you know, they came in in the pipe. They, they were extremely supportive. All of our existing shareholders that had strategic interest in the company participated. I think that speaks volumes to their outlook, to the usefulness of the technology. I mean, I won't speak directly for them. Of course, I cannot. But, but my impression and, and is through their action uh, has shown significant long-term support of the outlook of the company. Yeah, certainly. And those pipes are very important, as we've seen following a, a broad variety of SPACs uh, going towards their, their closing timeline these days. But sort of on that note, you know, Ellie, can you speak uh, to how confident you are in meeting the deal's minimum cash condition? And you know, what are some of the other ways that this deal aligns the interests of both your team and Nick's? 
Sure. So the pipe has been spoken for and the pipe that we raised was enough to cover all the closing costs plus the minimum cash conditions required. Uh, and so with that, we're, we're basically just working with the SEC here to conclude our review process of our S4 and then move forward with the transaction. So the, the dollars are spoken for and committed uh, from, from the investor base. In terms of how we're aligned, again, I think it goes to you know, long-term value relative to what's out there. And with the right mindset, you know, we have a very similar view as to creating shareholder value for all shareholders, not just the original shareholders, the early shareholders, but for new shareholders who come in now. And on that note, Nick, how did you ultimately decide to go with the SPAC deal over other financing options? And what benefits do you see Nauticus receiving from the clean tech team and its experience? Uh, Ellie was giving out the most $100 Amazon gift cards. You think I'm kidding? I mean, that's my answer. I mean, sorry. <laughs> no, um, let's see. Jeez. Uh, so, so Ellie, once you meet him and you spend more than five minutes with him, you want to be in business with him. It was really difficult given everything that you were reading um, as the SPAC market was starting to churn and the public market in general, frankly. You started sensing and, you know, which deal is going to be right for us. We did think about staying private. We thought about just raising a large round, staying private. For the reasons I mentioned previously, being a public company has its advantages, especially to our clients. And so then it was like, okay, who? And we had several term sheets from other SPACs. And, and, uh, and so we were trying to pick pick one, but he, he's uh, it just his integrity. It just, it just oozes out of him. And when you're trying to discern between who you're going to take a very long journey with, that's going to be, you know, it's going to be ups and downs, for sure ups and downs, right? Um, I couldn't think of anyone else I would rather be working with daily through this sort of delicate and sensitive trajectory than with Ellie. So it was actually a pretty easy choice. And then in the current climate, the, the market seems to be highly focused on cash generation and Nauticus initially forecasted positive EBITDA in 2023. So can you talk a bit about that path to profitability and where are you most focused on in increasing your margins moving forward? There's it's clearly an environment where costs are increasing, right? I mean, it just every single day you read about something, whether it's a supply chain, it's a material that only Russia produced, who knew? Um, right. There's, it's, it's, it's the realities of actually the public transaction, right? I think we're still going to end up pretty well this year, even with that sort of churn and, and that difficulty. There is a absolute macro economic environment. We see it every day in the market. We hear about it every day in the market. War can be not so great for investor confidence. And so we are dealing with some interesting terms, but our business, which happens to be aligned not only with energy transition, but also conventional energy, and has an element that is can be leveraged in, in the defense world. Um, those are kind of three markets that are doing pretty well right now. You know, Ellie, Ellie once asked me, he's, he's like, what's, what's the worst thing you think can go wrong? And I was like, it takes six months longer than we think. And he's like, that's it? Okay, <laughs> okay. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't see the future, right? But we have a floor, right? Our, our, our downside's fairly protected in the business. We've got the right product. We've got the right idea. We've got the right markets. Does it take six months longer than I have anticipated? You know, maybe. Things are looking pretty damn good right now. And then for Ellie, given that many of Nautilus's listed competitors are early stage companies in a cash burn mode, how did you think about valuation when putting the deal together? So again, we looked at the comps and, and if you look at our investor presentation, we saw the range given EBITDA multiples, revenue multiples going out a couple of years that the range was about one to 3 billion in valuation. 
And we said, again, let's look at a number that's well inside of that. We came in at 300 million pre-money. Again, so we should make it, uh, make it make a very easy decision for investors to look at this and say, there clearly is upside here. Now that's an investor decision that they have to make, but we're trying to make it easy for them. And so Nick, you know, you've been working on very cool technology for your entire career, obviously in, in space now underwater. Just so, just on the on the technical side, I know you have a lot of exciting things that are right in front of you um, in terms of your rollout right now. But just sort of technologically, what are some of the things that are, you're most excited about in the space that you're attacking? I think there's an electrification occurring underwater that really it's really fun, right? So this sort of autonomous system deployment and this electrification. For a while, the, the ocean environment was sort of kind of left behind in that that thinking, that race, right? Electric cars were all the talk, now electric aviation, electric taxis, right? We have the whole terrestrial and aerial environment sort of understood and dominated, but you transition back to the, to the ocean community and things are really messy, hydraulics, antiquated equipment, kind of like heavy construction stuff, right? And to be part of and on sort of the leading edge of that sort of electrification and deployment of autonomous systems in the ocean environment and be one of those, I think, early, not to overuse the word, but pioneers, right? I mean, we're, we're sort of telling the, an industry and the market, you know, hey guys, I, mean, I know you've sort of been here for a while and you've kind of been doing this a certain way, but we think there's another way, right? We, we think there's an alternative here and we think it could still be very profitable, right? To be on sort of that leading edge, it's, it's quite exciting. I mean, very exciting. Great. And, uh, and, and lastly, just before I let you guys go, Ellie, could you uh, provide our listeners on uh, just any kind of update at all you have uh, in terms of the timeline of the transaction moving forward? <clears throat> uh, sure. So originally we said we were targeting a close by the end of the second quarter. Obviously, we're, we're getting very close to that with tomorrow and uh, we haven't had our S4 effective yet. But look, that's an SEC review process. We're in the middle of that. Uh, we're moving along that timeline. Um, you know, we're confident we're going to get to closing. I just, the ball's in SEC's court in terms of uh, really pushing that further, but we're, we're going to get there pretty soon. Great. Well, it's certainly going to be fun to watch you guys as you get this thing to, to close and getting those robots as a service out there. As you mentioned, there are really very few things cooler than robots deep underwater doing work. And so it's been a great time talking to both of you. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having us. Mm -hmm.